Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. America, a ten pack at ease. Welcome to Phyllis, the show that whips knowledge knots across your head as quick as you can rub them. I'm your thrill sergeant, Uncle Jimmy. He's your fearless leader, Jason Whitlock. And you, you are the fearless army that does exist in a state of man glorious. And this is the day that heathens refer to, to as hump day. We here at Phyllis, we choose to call it Wednesday Harmony. And of course, that means that we're gonna have the pastors in the house. And today we got Pastor Anthony. He's flying solo. And today, he and Jason are gonna discuss TJ's Moe's comments yesterday about men being providers, protectors, and procreators. But before we do, we're hopping back in the rows and we're heading up to the Twin City of Minneapolis and holler at our guy, Royce White. Royce is gonna chime in about this Aaron Rodgers, COVID, and the NFL situation. And joining us again today is gonna to be my cool Korean crony. And of course, I'm talking about Stephen A. Kim. Stephen's gonna tell us what he thinks about this year's college bowl season and everything else that's going on. So right now, it's that time. We need to release the doves. Release the hounds. We need to giveth, himeth the five stars that he asked. And then we need to phone at the friend, like the like button, and go and perch the merch. Now, I can't promise you you're gonna look as good as me, but I can tell you you'll sure feel as good as me. So ladies and gentlemen, with no further delay or ado, I give you the man whose mother that told him as a little baby, She'd love him even if he got as big as a house. Little did she know that one day he'd take her up on it. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up to my guy, Jason Whitlock. Again, hey, happy Wednesday, happy hump day. Uh, let's get this fire started. I've been on a great roll uh, this week and it continues today with these fire starters. Uh, COVID-19, it's not all bad. It appears one of its side effects is turning Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers into a combination of Muhammad Ali and Navin R. Johnson. Of course, you remember Ali, the greatest boxer of all time. Ali fell under the spell of Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X and risked prison and invited national scorn by refusing induction into the military and participation in the Vietnam War. But do you remember Navin Johnson, the jerk? He was the lead character in the 1979 movie classic, The Jerk. Comedian Steve Martin played the role of Navin, the white adopted son of black Southern sharecroppers. Navin hilariously has no idea 
that his black parents adopted him. Rogers has fallen under the spell of podcasters Joe Rogan and Pat McAfee and has refused the COVID vaccine injection. The quarterback's defiance apparently is going to jeopardize his chance to win the NFL's MVP award this season and has invited national scorn. One of the 50 voters for the Associated Press's MVP award, Hub Arkush, labeled Rodgers the biggest jerk in the league, a bad guy, and stated that he won't vote Rodgers MVP for that reason. Rodgers is the jerk. He had no idea that deciding what's best for his body would provoke lunatics to treat him like a 1960s black man. But here, here for yourself, listen to a Hub Arkish, this AP MVP voter on radio yesterday. Do you have an MVP vote this year, Hub? I do. Yeah, I'm one of the AP. There's 50 of us who vote, and I am one of us. And are you? did you reveal that you're not voting for Aaron Rodgers? Is that correct? I did. Yeah. I mean, I've been pretty consistent about that all year. Um, I don't think you can be the biggest jerk in the league and punish your, your team and your organization and your fan base the way he did and be the most valuable player. It, it, has he been the most valuable on the field? Yeah, you could make that argument, but I don't think he is clearly that much more valuable than, than Jonathan Taylor or uh, or Cooper Cup or, or maybe even Tom Brady. And, and so from where I sit, the rest of it is why he's not going to be my choice. Do I think he's going to win it probably you know there, there, a lot of the voters don't don't approach it the same way that i do others do who i've spoken to um but one of the, the, the ways we get to keep being voters is we're not allowed to say who we are voting for until after the award has been announced i'm probably pushing the envelope by saying who i'm not voting for um but we're, we're not really supposed to reveal our votes are they supposed to are off-field things like vaccination status supposed to factor in or are there no guidelines for that there's no guidelines. Uh, you know, we are told to pick the guy who we think is the most valuable to his team. And, and um, the, you know, I, I don't think it says anywhere, you know, strictly on the field. Uh, although I do think he hurt his team on the field, uh, you know, by, by the way he acted off the field. Uh, you, you know, I mean, they're going to get the number one seed anyway. But what if the difference had come down to uh, to the Chiefs game, you know, where he lied about being vaccinated and, and, and you know, ended up not playing and they got beat. So uh, I think all these things should be considerations. That's the way I look at it. He ruined the entire offseason for that football team. They were left in jeopardy. They had no idea what they were doing. Um, uh, a, a lot of the off-the-field stuff was wasted because he wasn't there. He tortured his fan base um, uh, and he's and he's getting ready. He's already started doing it again. Oh, he, so, you know, so, he, so he couldn't have won the MVP before the season for you? For me, no. Yeah, no. I, I just think that, that the way he's carried himself is inappropriate, and and, and you know the the, the the vaccine thing just was one more, you know, log on the fire, so to speak. I, I think he's a bad guy, you know, and I don't think a bad guy can be the most valuable valuable guy at the same time. <sighs> this guy's a nut job. That was nutty. What we just listened to, and and the the uh, the key thing in there he's not alone he sated that that he's that he's talked to other voters who think the same way as him this is the kind of utter lunacy covid has sparked among the branch covidians the mask wearing leftists who believe my body my choice only applies to killing children in the womb arkish reminds me of david suskin 
the popular American TV host who trashed Muhammad Ali on national television shortly after a jury disregarded Ali's religious objection and convicted him of refusing the draft. I find nothing amusing or interesting or tolerable about this man. He's a disgrace to his country, his race, and what he laughingly describes as his profession. He is a convicted felon in the United States. He has been found guilty. He is out on bail. He will inevitably go to prison, as well he should. He's a simplistic fool and a pawn. I find nothing amusing or tolerable about the way Rogers has been treated since it was discovered his COVID immunization didn't include taking the experimental medical trial that is being hailed as the Corona silver bullet. Arkish gave, the vo gave voice to a sentiment that could derail Rogers' MVP candidacy. Arkish was dumb for publicly admitting his bias, but he's not remotely alone. He said it so himself. Many people within corporate media think it's perfectly fine to discriminate against the unvaccinated. Rogers could face additional discrimination because he appears to be flirting with the concept of publicly embracing conservative values. During ESPN's Monday Night Football broadcast, Rogers yucked it up with Peyton and Eli Manning and bragged about reading Ann Ryan pro-capitalism manifesto, Atlas Shrugged, and mentioned his Chuck Norris bobblehead. Norris, the action movie star, is a prominent, unashamed Hollywood Republican. Take a look at this clip from Monday night. What are some of those, are some books, of those books over your, your shoulder there? Yeah. What, what, uh, what are we reading oh, yeah. on, a, on a Monday or Tuesday? Poetry? Scotch. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of French poetry. Yeah. Uh, got Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand over here, and you know, I, I rearranged him to look like you know the, the the whole thing is is filled here. I got I got this helmet here with both you guys signed it, so thanks for doing that. I got Chuck Norris uh, over here on my left, the action figurine. Obviously, that's a staple on any any bookshelf in America. Um, so it's it's the you know if you look at things that count for sure. Back in October, I wrote a column about Rogers cleverly supporting comedian Dave Chappelle by ripping cancel culture and the woke mob during a podcast interview with McAfee. From way on the outside, it looks like someone slipped Rogers the red pill. Or maybe the number one side effect of COVID is the red pill. The red pill is ivermectin? That means COVID isn't all bad. It's forcing people to wake up and recognize the lies global elites, politicians, Hollywood, big tech, and corporate media are shoving in our brains and veins. The beauty of COVID is that it impacts all of us, men and women and children, rich and poor, old and young, black, white, and brown, believers and non-believers, educated and uneducated, famous and unfamous. It's unifying in the same way that critical race theory has unified parents concerned about what is being taught inside our public schools. Teaching kids to view our country as a force for evil makes a rational person pause, ponder, and push back. That's what's happening with Aaron Rodgers and people across the globe as it relates to COVID and the alleged vaccines. 
There are too many lies to be ignored or written off as honest mistakes, too many negative consequences to not raise your voice out of concern. The lockdowns and isolation have sparked a rise in suicides and depression. The normal, healthy development of kids has been compromised. The experimental medical trials don't seem to prevent COVID as advertised. The COVID pandemic just might save freedom. It might make men stand up. It has certainly inspired Aaron Rodgers, the NFL's most talented and interesting player. Rodgers is remaking The Jerk into a superhero movie. That's my fire. Aaron Rodgers, Superman, superhero. He's been forced, and, and I think we have COVID to thank for this. I think it's waking people up. Uh, I was in a conversation last night uh, with Royce White, the uh, former NBA first round draft pick, one of the most thoughtful sports voices and athlete voices we have. We talked about a lot of this last night. He wanted to come, come back on the program and talk about Aaron Rodgers and what's going on with Aaron Rodgers and, and my thoughts about like, is this COVID related? Maybe this is one of the good side effects of COVID. It's making people think, it's making people get beyond this political division and just start saying what they really think. I, I'm hoping Aaron Rodgers, Kyrie, just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Royce, uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, you think I'm right in, in crediting COVID for waking up Aaron Rodgers? Well, thanks for having me back, Jason. And first, I got to address my bias. Okay. I'm a Minnesota loyalist, especially when it comes to sports. <laughs> okay. And if anybody is participating who's from Minnesota, I'm usually rooting for you, even if I don't like you personally. And we hate Green Bay. We hate the Packers. We hate Green Bay. There's not a bigger rivalry for a Minnesota sports fan than the Vikings and the Packers. So we, we hate Aaron Rodgers and we hate Brett Favre. Um, we hated Brett Favre, but I think over the years, Aaron Rodgers has started to develop or gain the respect of Vikings fans the same way that his predecessor Brett Favre did. And I, you know, I have nothing but respect for Brett Favre. I have nothing but respect for Aaron Rodgers. They're two of the greatest quarterbacks to ever do it. And I say that because I think it's important for us to separate athletes and their athletic accomplishments from their political stances. And you all, you know that I'm a big advocate of athletes being political and, and have taken a stand when the time comes. But it's not necessary to to clump them together with their athletic uh, accomplishments. And, you know, I think that being said, it does appear that Aaron Rodgers early on dabbled in, in the wokeism and has slowly moved over uh, to, to being red-pilled and, and rejoice for that. I'm, I'm happy about that. Um, I think his stance on the vaccine mandates uh, was the right one. Uh, and I think the vaccine mandates are one of, if not the most important and defining issue of our generation. And he seems to be on the right side of it. So rejoice to him for that. And, and I'm very appreciative that he's spoken out the way he has. I would be on the opposite end of the journalist and saying that if, if anything, uh, a consideration for his courage around the vaccine mandates uh, would would bump him up in, in my view as a as a voter. Uh, if they were going to say that there weren't any standards to the voting, I don't know how that that whole voting criteria hasn't been better pinned down, but I, I love what Aaron Rodgers has done so far. Do you see this whole vaccine mandate situation and COVID situation 
being the key in perhaps waking up other athletes. I, I don't, I, I, I honestly was like depressed about COVID and where we've gone, but now I see it perhaps as something that's actually going to end up being a positive. Well, well time will tell, um, you know, and, and in fairness to Aaron and all of my fellow athletes, and you know, I'm very critical of athletes who, who make political stances who take, who have political opinions. And I think we should be critical. I think that, that we've created a culture in America where criticism is seen as a, as a default negative. I don't believe that that's the case. Um, but, but in fairness to a lot of my fellow athletes, in, in onerology, right? And onerology is the study of dreams, okay? And, and in that, there's a phenomenon called the false awakening. And it's characterized as being asleep, dreaming that you woke up, but you're still unconscious, right? It's also known as a double dream. I think a lot of our athletes and a lot of our public figures have got caught in this wokeism because they're having these false awakenings. And you hear people joke about being fake woke. There's actually a real term for that in, in the onerology field. But, um, you know, I still give them credit for that, right? Like I still give them credit for making the attempt to shake the the mainstream narrative that they've been fed and brainwashed with, uh, even if they don't fully wake up. And I think the COVID topic particularly has become so overtly dishonest and so overtly tyrannical and, and um, you know, try to take over people's lives that it has forced people to to wake up to something that they may have otherwise not so soon. And I think you see that with Aaron Rodgers. Kyrie Irving's another example. I didn't agree with the flat earth, uh, uh, the flat earth piece with him. Uh, I thought that that wasn't, you know, the, the hill to die on or to even become really entangled with. But I respect that these young athletes are trying to at least have a stance on important things as opposed to a big portion of our society in America and in the world that pretends they have a real opinion, but they haven't really even looked into any of these things. And, and I think COVID's a perfect example. We, I don't, I'm not sure if it was you and I, I think it was more me and Delano had a bit of a discussion about LeBron James. And LeBron, uh, because of the COVID and the vaccine mandates, he, he, he I think, Someone has been shaken up a bit. He put out the meme, you know, with the COVID flu and cold deal. And, and, and that's where I keep saying, like, and what you said, the lies as it relates to COVID are so overt. They're so in your face. And, and the false promise of the vaccines and what they was going to eliminate. And, 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 you know, Joe Biden foolishly, I'm going to stop the the COVID. I'm going to stop coronavirus. I'm going to put an end to it. That's such a ridiculous claim by a president that he thought he had that kind of power that, that again, I'll, I'll just say that even for someone like LeBron James, I'm a bit hopeful that this COVID thing is going to wake him up and perhaps send him a bit more of a courageous direction and, and I think Aaron Rodgers is so talented and, and he's dominating America's number one sport 
that he could be the actual Pied Piper and give the room for other athletes to say what they really believe. I think many people have just been going along because they're afraid of the social media mob. And Aaron Rodgers is basically standing out there saying, don't be afraid of the social media mob. Screw the social media mob. Say what you really believe. I, 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 this leaves me even hopeful about LeBron James. Well, I'm a very pro athlete guy. You know that. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to advocate for the athletes a lot of the time, although I'm still going to be critical of them. And I've been critical of LeBron James. But I understand that part of the hesitancy of these guys to have an opinion is, first and foremost, many of the fans have come to the sports domain to escape reality. So they don't want to have real conversations and they don't want their sports idols to have real conversations. That That's that's an infringement on their escape from all of their their woes in life. So many of them don't even want athletes to have an, an opinion on anything to begin with. And the establishment takes on that that characteristic. Um, and then and then beyond that, you have the obvious situation where a lot of these young athletes come out of college early and they don't have a real uh, in-depth understanding of these very important issues that are super complex and have a lot of history behind them. Uh, unless you were an anomaly like me, where I just took up these researches independently. Uh, it's obviously not the, the, the common um, circumstance for many of these young athletes, so they don't have a good understanding. But on top of those two things, you have a liberal, rich establishment that surrounds sports that gives you the, the intuition as a young athlete that if I say some of these red pill things, it's going to have an impact on my you know, commercial marketability, but it may actually, in fact, have an impact on my career with the with the establishment and the teams themselves at this point. That's how deep the liberalism has been entrenched in, in modern sports. So I, I give a lot of these athletes a pass on on the level with which they want to become political. Um, and, and certainly any time a, a player as known as successful, as good as Aaron Rodgers decides to be a little more open with, with his red-pilled views, I see it as a win for society. Because make no mistake about it, sports, like I said before, sports has become this watering hole for a global corporate community. And whether you like it or not, the sports are the politics. That's why all of the political conversations are coming down to bear on the athletes in first order, right? Aaron Rodgers wasn't talking about vaccine as some third party issue in, in a country far off, right? They they wanted them to get vaccinated. And that was the narrative around professional sports. And if you're not, like the sports writer said, you're a hindrance on your team. So um, a lot of these issues are just starting to affect many of us more directly than they ever have. Well, as pro live professional sports are the only thing that really work on regular TV, uh, because, you know, you can watch things on your DVR, you can uh, fast forward through commercials, you can watch things when you want. Live sports are critical in terms of reaching the masses and conveying a message, and that's why I think politics has so aggressively invaded sports, because it's the only way to really uh, reach people. I wanted your thoughts on, because when we really think about somebody who's bulletproof, and I've been critical all this week, of Tom Brady, he's as bulletproof as any athlete, perhaps ever, with all seven Super Bowls. Uh, he's still playing at age 44 years old. What do you think about 
Tom Brady, I've been kind of critical that, you know, Tom Brady should be out front and a bit more outspoken on this vaccine mandate issue. I mean, you know where I stand on it. I mean, I, I just, there, to me, I see people calling for athletes or creating a, creating a excuse for athletes not to take the necessary stand, not a stand that they want to take, a necessary stand on issues that affect each and every one of us as a complete sleight of hand. And I'm perfectly able to say Tom Brady's the greatest quarterback of all time. He's certainly not the greatest athlete of all time. That's ridiculous. Actually, my uncle Dave Winfield might be the greatest athlete of all time, but Tom's certainly the, the greatest quarterback of all time. I can separate that from the fact that he should be standing up as a leader, regardless of being the quarterback of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the greatest quarterback of all time. This is a time period where men have been called to stand up against the forces of evil, to bear witness, to rebuke and refute. And there's something biblical to that. And I think many of these sports fans who, who do tend to lean conservative create this, this illusion for themselves where they and their sports idols can just denounce the politics. And it's like this economics-only conservatism. It's like these Mitt Romney guys, these rhinos. It's like, no, you don't get to just be conservative economically. There's a moral claim, and the morality supersedes sports. It supersedes your need to detach from your regular life. It supersedes your need to drink a beer or get drunk. It supersedes all of those things, and that's the real call to righteousness and God. And, and Tom hasn't answered that call as of today. There's still hope for him and all these other athletes, all these other men who have sat back quiet. Uh, Royce, that was excellent. We're going to end on that note because I don't think you can do any better. I can't. And so, you know, you've jumped over a bar, tall, well, I can only jump over the Sunday paper, and the Sunday paper is not very high at this point. Uh, anyway, thank you, Royce. Uh, great job. We'll circle back to you later in the week. All right, go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Uh, hit that subscribe, hit those likes. If you're listening over Apple, give me that five-star review. Just click the five-star deal. It's a way you can support the uh, Fearless Army and help my show up in the ratings. All right, uh, stick around. Uh, the Korean co-sell, Steve Kim. Hurts. All right, welcome back. Uh, time to roll out to Los Angeles and bring in uh, the Korean Cosell, one of the smartest men talking sports. I would say the smartest man talking sports, but I talk sports. How could the Korean Cosell be smarter than me? But maybe he is. Sometimes I think he's, he's funnier, more clever than I am. Uh, if he looked as good as me, he might be a star. Uh, Steve Kim, uh, welcome back to the show. And you know what? What we're going to do today, we're going to talk about your favorite topic, college football and what a mess it is. Mm. Uh, last night, I f turned on my TV and I was, Kansas State LSU, a bowl game between two mediocre yeah. teams on January the 4th on a random Tuesday. And all I just kept thinking about was they have made college football a complete mess. They destroyed January 1 as a brand. It's all, all this. But, I, I don't want to go too big picture right off the top. I, I think I just want to start with 
where you wanted me to start, or what you were most interested in, Kirk Herbstreet, and again, this is just all part of the big mess that they've made college football. Kirk Herbstreet and Desmond Howard were on ESPN, and they were upset about all these guys opting out of bowl games. So let's play that clip. I think we have it, and then we'll start our discussion there, and then I'm going to take a dump on the rest of the college football postseason. What's the difference as a player in saying these games are meaningless when, Des, we played in quote-unquote meaningless games. I mean, I know you guys were right. here a lot, but I just don't understand. If you don't make it to the playoff, how is it meaningless to yeah. play football and compete? Isn't that what we do as right. football players? We, we compete. So yeah. I, I, don't know if cha- I don't know if changing and expanding it yeah. is going to ch- change anything. I really don't. I think this era of player just doesn't love football. That's what I was about to say. We're dealing with a total men- different mentality when we're dealing with these um, student athletes nowadays, especially the football players. I mean, their whole mentality right now is about the championship, the playoff. We got to get into the, the CFB or the CFP. And because of that, they don't value the bowl games. Now, when we were coming up, Herbstreet and myself, like to go to a bowl game was a huge reward for a fantastic season. That's what it meant. It's like, okay. Your team played this well, so you're going to be rewarded by going to this bowl game. You're going to get a ring. You're going to get swag. Now, kids don't really care about that. They're, they're, they, they have a sense of entitlement. And it's like, if we're not going to the one that matters, then, you know, it just doesn't have as much value to them as it did us growing up. Uh, so, Steve, let's start here that, in 1991, when Herb Street and Desmond Howard were playing college football, uh, 82, uh, no, 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 I'm sorry, 36 of 107 Division I teams qualified for a bowl game. That's 33%. This year, 82 of 130 Division I teams, 63% qualified for a bowl game. There's no scarcity. Everybody, teams with losing records, teams that have mediocre seasons, all get to go to a bowl game, and we wonder why kids don't care. It's not as valuable. And, And Jason, you're right. There is an absolute dilution of product. When I was growing up, there used to be about 15 to 18 bowl games in the 80s. And whether it was the Blue Bonnet Bowl, which no longer exists, or the Rose Bowl, I remember it becoming appointment viewing. As it relates to what Kirk and Desmond said, I don't actually have a problem with much of their comments, except they don't love football, these kids. I think they do. They put an incredible amount of commitment and focus in their early lives, give up a piece of their childhood to make the sacrifices to be as good as they are. But from their perspective, and they made it clear, it's our perspective as guys that played in the 90s, there was no meaningless game. There's no doubt there's a generational battle going on here. But where, where they're a little bit tone deaf is in exactly what you tied into. Their own network is part of the reason this is happening. Because a lot of these bowl games is just programming in the holiday post-Thanksgiving time frame for ESPN to put up three and a half hours plus of football. Because they know that football is great gambling-wise. It's very good in the ratings. But you're right, Jay. Uh, Yesterday, as Kansas State and LSU played, I think it's, what, January 3rd or 4th, I'm thinking to myself, you know, these young men didn't want to play the game on December 28th or 29th. They certainly are not going to want to play it on January 4th. It just looks so meaningless. It really did. And and I'm a guy that believes 
that football players should play football games. But I do understand the other side of it, that if you are a blue chip marquee player, why would you want to play in a game between two, eight and three teams? It really does not make a lot of sense. 41 bowl matchups this year. Desmond Howard's last year at Michigan, 1991, there were 18 bowl games. And so it's just not special. It's not. And and the problem for me, Steve, is I was always against the direction we've gone. I, I, I are and you can go back and read my old columns if there I know there's some still up at ESPN Kansas City Star took all my stuff away uh, a little petty insecure <laughs> people they are but I was writing about this long ago like hey man college football is special the way it is it doesn't need a playoff the regular season is unbelievable I was the first person to make the argument that College football, what makes it special is every regular season game matters. It impacts who gets to be number one. Every, even when Penn State is playing some mid-major, it has an impact. Did they blow the team out? How's it going to affect them in the final poll? Every regular season. So they've diluted the regular season. It's not as meaningful. And now our big reward is, oh, we get this four-team playoff at the end. And those two games we just sat through, uh, last weekend, last Friday, were horrible because, and the reason they were horrible is because unlike the NFL, college football does not have parity. It has two or three dynasties. And those two dynasties going right now, Georgia and uh, Alabama, Clemson occasionally slips in there, and they'll be one of the two. Ohio State may occasionally jump up. But, but there's no parity. It's not the NFL. The rich get richer in college football, and Alabama and Georgia, everybody could see it with their own eyes beforehand. Those are the two best teams. They're a class above every, Cincinnati and Michigan or Notre Dame if they had been put in there, or Oklahoma State, or whoever you want to put in there. They weren't as good as Georgia and Alabama. We don't need a playoff to decide this. Alabama already beat Georgia, and during the old system, Alabama would have justifiably been named the national championship, the national champion. I, I, I just, I've been so against this bowl and, and, and or this ex playoff expansion, and expanding the playoffs is not a solution. It's not going to make the ending of college football any better. It's just going to create more meaningless games that eventually, unless there's a COVID outbreak or a bunch of injuries, the two really dynastic teams are going to win the national championship and play in the national championship. <sighs> anyway, respond to any of that. Well, Jay, I remember writing back in one of my columns, final flurries from my canines corner on snack, just a little throwaway line. I said, Alabama and Georgia are the two best teams, and they're destined to play twice, once in the SEC title game, and obviously for all the marbles. Precisely what happened. I wasn't the only one to say it. Here's what I find ironic for me as a college football fanatic, and I've told you this, and it's absolutely true. From Labor Day weekend on, all the way to about the first week of December, my weekend's start on Thursday with the college football games and then eventually the NFL Thursday. And from 
Thursday at about 4.30 Pacific time, all the way till about Monday night, uh, about, what, 9, 9 o'clock, 9.15, a little bit sooner. I literally watch about 30 to 36 hours of football. I'm talking from Thursday to Friday to Saturday. It's basically college football dominated. Sunday, I watch 10 to 12 hours, and then the Monday night game. It's really ironic that the regular season in college football, even though it's diluted, it doesn't have quite the impact it once did, it still very much matters because we're still only talking about a 14 playoff. But what's interesting is that when we start getting into mid-December and the bowl games roll out, Jason, I don't watch a lot of bowl games. I don't have a stomach for it, and I'll tell you a story. Last Thursday or Friday, I was looking forward to the game between Pitt and Michigan State, two teams that played Miami. One team had Kenny Pickett, Heisman Trophy finalist. The other one had Kenneth Walker III, who should have been in the Heisman uh, discussion till the very end. And then I'm at the office, and I'm packing up, and I said to my, wait a minute, wait a minute. Neither guy is playing. What's the allure? I mean, I ended up watching the game. Eventually, I got home a little bit later, watched the last half. I had no interest in the game. So that, that's, that's the interesting thing about college football. It's the only major sport in America where there's less interest in the postseason than there is in the regular season. The other point I want to make, Jay, I'm living in this reality. We're going to have a playoff. It's probably going to be expanded. But in the current system, it feels incredibly anticlimactic, if that's the right word, that when the playoff games happened on, on December 31st, New Year's Eve, then you have all these other bowl games that used to mean something on January 1st. If the playoff is your signature event, the thing that we should all care about, shouldn't it be actually the other way around? The other bowl games need to move off of New Year's Eve, and the two major bowl games, the playoff games, need to have their own dedicated stage on January 1? Uh, that would be a slight improvement. The real improvement would be to or, or, or a step in the right direction. You got to win eight games to qualify for a bowl. Period. <laughs> End of story. And, and, and I say that nobody loves their college football team more than I love my college football team, the Ball State Cardinals. I'm financially invested. I, I, I love, live for Ball State football. We were six and six this year and played in a bowl game three or four hours from Nashville. I had no interest in going. I didn't watch but a handful of plays of the game because we had a disappointing six and six season. Love the kids, love the coaches, believe in them. I'll be right back on board next season. But I had no interest in watching a disappointing Ball State team play in a bowl game. And we have, I blame the media more than anybody for destroying is the wrong word, but uh, undermining the passion of college football and its postseason. The media has done this. We, and again, <clears throat> we got all more and more and more. We need more and more and more. Let's have playoff games. And, and you're right, ESPN needs all the content that they can get. Fox Sports needs content, so we have more bowl games and all of that. All, less is actually more. Scarcity is what creates value. If there's an overabundance of anything, it's not as valuable. 
Jay, I, I'm kind of with you. I, I'm a Miami Hurricane fanatic, as most people know. And, and when their game got canceled, the Sun Bowl against Washington State due to a COVID outbreak, I'll be honest, it didn't phase me. I just said, well, three and a half hours of my day just opened up to do something I really want to do, which I don't even know what I did. But I, I was, honestly, it didn't phase me. Here, here's a question I have about players opting out. Two things I want to ask you, uh, Jason. Number one, how would you have looked at a teammate that you went through blood, sweat, and tears throughout the offseason, spring practice, fall camp, and you go through 11, 12 games, you put together a 9-10 win season, but he's a first-round draft choice or going to be drafted in the second round. He says, hey, guys, I love you, but I love my body a little bit more. How would you have looked at that as a player that was in the 80s? Also, the other thing is with the NIL um, element, now where players are essentially getting paid over the table – I wonder how binding will these agreements be? I mean, what, will, will there be fine print from a corporation or a company that says, hey, we want to support you, but you also have to play in a bowl game? Because now the players for years said we need to get compensated, we need to get paid. I didn't disagree with that. Uh, my question is this. Doesn't that come with some consequences when, in essence, you are a paid employee? Let me answer your first question. That's easier for me. You may have to re-ask the second question because I, I don't know if I care that much about the NIL stuff. Let, let me, the first question, though, about kids opting out, and I'm not even going to go back to the 1980s and me. I'm going to go back to just this past Christmas season. Purdue University paid a bowl game right here in Nashville, Tennessee. Purdue's best player is a wide receiver by the name of David Bell. He went to my high school. He's one of the greatest young people I've ever met. He's a tremendous leader. He's a tremendous human being, tre tremendous football player. Someone is, go if this kid is drafted in the second round, someone's gonna get the best second round pick in their franchise history. Guy's a first round, guy's a first round wide receiver, solid human being, solid kid. And so I'm not offended by Kirk Herbstreet's comments that and Desmond Howard, that these kids don't love football the way they used to. All I can tell you is David Bell is one of the greatest competitors I've ever met. David Bell is one of the greatest young people I've ever met. He, he loves football. He loves competing. He opted out of that bowl game because it didn't make sense for him to take the risk of injury in some meaningless bowl game as opposed to him turning pro and protecting his health. He, he took his, he hit his head on the field this year and suffered a terrible concussion in about the seventh, eighth game of the season. And he's all, I think he had a knee injury one off season ago. There's just no way it doesn't make sense for him to play in that bowl game and risk any kind of injury that could jeopardize his draft status, his, his uh, tryouts either at the combine or uh, workouts uh, at the University of Purdue. The, guy's gotta, the guy has to be somewhere training to make sure he runs the right 40-yard dash time so that he has a chance to be a first-round pick. The only knock on him, I think, is that they, they don't feel like he has that top end, take off the top of the defense speed. But, but trust me, this kid can get deep. He's gotten deep at the high school, collegiate level. 
He's fast enough. He runs as fast as he needs to. But he needs to prepare for that because there's too much financial risk. He's made all these sacrifices for a number of years at the high school and the collegiate level. He's done everything right and by the book. And there's no reason for him to play in a meaningless bowl game. And there's not one reason for anybody to question this kid's passion for football, integrity in terms of preparing, and competitiveness. This dude is a baller in every sense of the word. So, okay, so that's how Jay, I would answer. Yeah. All right, so let's throw out my second question. We can deal with that some other time. What if a guy seven games in is on a three and four team, but it's putting up monster numbers, Mel Kuyper and all these mock drafts, and this guy's a top 10 pick. So what if a guy says by his eighth game, hey, guys, I put in my work. I'm a junior eligible. Nice knowing you. How would you deal with a guy that says, you know what, then? These next four games of mine in the regular season, they're essentially meaningless. I, the haze in the barn. How would you look at a situation like that, Jason? Uh, I think that's going to happen. I believe there's going to be a time when guys say, you know what? I don't even need to do my junior season. Let me just train for the next four or five months. I mean, at what point do we? Draw I don't the think line? I'm going to have much of a. I don't think I'm going to have much of a problem with it, and, and I'm going to hmm. tell you why. Uh, and and this is somewhat. It's different, but again. Coaches, successful coaches, are negotiating their next job while the season is still in play. And as soon as the regular season's over, they bail and someone else coaches the team during the bowl season. And so uh, we have made a situation where sports, and I talked about this at the beginning of this week, uh, in one of my monologues, I think on Monday, where I just thought, sports are no longer a force for good. They're just about money and how much money I can make. And that's all anybody, from the athletes to the coaches to the that's all anybody's in it for. And so I can't blame the kids for an environment created by adults. The adults did this to college athletics. They made it all about money. And so I'm not going to get upset with the kids for following the lead of the adults. And, and so I can't say that I would like it. I can't say that it's the perfect right thing to do. But that's the system we set up. And, these, and this is where your NIL thing relates to it. Again, this, the whole NIL thing is just all about money. And, and, and people laugh at Dabo Sweeney for saying it like, man, education's a non-factor right now and he's upset about it. And, and basically what he's saying is, other than X's and O's, I have nothing to offer these kids. And, and it used to be that 10%, 15%, what, in his mind, 50% of what he offered the kids was beyond football in his mind. That may not be true. Maybe it was only 10%, but there was some percentage of being a head coach, even at the big Division I schools, that it was more than about just football. They have now reduced it all to just football and money. And so Dabo Sweeney sitting there and all these coaches sitting there saying, it's kind of pointless for me to try to teach any other life lessons. Any, None of that matters. Just let me let me tell you how to get in and out of this route. Let me tell you how to backpedal. Let me tell you how to do this swim technique to get to the quarterback. 
and then let me tell you how, what business is willing to funnel you money while you're here in school so you'll shut up and be happy and play football for me. Well, yeah, look, Dabble was being a little bit naive. There's never been a football coach that I know of that was fired for a low team GPA or not teaching enough life lessons. Your job is to win football games. Dabble's been very good at it. And look, I think it's a more honest system now. I read a, a column or an article that Texas A&M, led by Jimbo Fisher, they're doing an unbelievable job recruiting, one of the greatest classes ever put together. And I guess the boosters are paying up to 25 to $30 million for this class. There is a price of success. At least now it's more in the open. It reminds me of that old quote from the great track coach, Charlie Francis, who negotiated or engineered the rise of one Ben Johnson in the 1988 Olympics. He said, it's a level playing field, just not the one you think it is. So at least now everyone knows the price of doing business in college football. There's no need to demonize the old SMUs of the past. Everyone's playing the same game. Everyone wanted the players to be financially rewarded and enriched. Well, well, that's happening. So Dabo, Dabo I, I don't really understand what his tact is. I think a lot of these comments come off looking as, as if he's out of touch. But one thing I want to hit on, Jason, I didn't, I didn't mind what Herb Street or Desmond said. What I didn't like was Kirk then clarifying or walking back his statements in another tweet. My view was, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Kirk, your job is to give your opinion, your viewpoint. And if people don't like it, tough. I want Kirk's honest opinion. I just think we have way too much of this in the media of couching our statements and thinking, okay, I hope I don't upset certain people. Uh, I want to be on the quote unquote right side of history. Kirk, you're a football player that played in the 90s. You have a certain viewpoint about it. You make money in football. You know football. You've done football. Give me your honest opinion. Damn the critics. I don't care what. Because I get accused all the time, Jay, in boxing. Well, you live in the past. Because I expect professional boxers at the world-class level to fight one more time a year instead of the current twice a year. You know what? I don't care what you think. That's my opinion. I'm going to stand on this square. That's what Kirk should have done. Oh, I want to – someone put it in the prompter because I want to read Kirk's comments uh, directly because I, I want to – just wanted to clarify some of my comments from earlier today. Of course, some players love the game the same today as ever, but some don't. I'll always love the players of this game, and sorry if people thought I generalized or lumped them all into one category. That's what I assumed he said, and that's why I disagree with you, Steve. I don't have any problem with him clarifying his comments. And, and, and the reason why is because you're on live TV a lot of times, and you say something in an incomplete manner uh, because you're trying to, in a sound bite, you may get distracted, you may get interrupted. And, and when I heard him the first time say, uh, hey, they don't love the game the same way, I thought in my mind, you know, he's not talking about everybody. He knows way too many kids in college football. Uh, his sons are, aren't his sons at Clemson. He knows yeah. way too many kids. He knows that that statement doesn't apply to everybody. And so I, I have no problem with him clarifying that if some people w were taking as like none of these kids love football the way we do, he didn't really, he didn't mean that. So he just clarified his very provocative, 
off-the-cuff opinion with a little bit more context because I'm sure if Kirk were watching right now, you go, everything Jason said about David Bell, he probably knows that to be true. Kirk follows the Big Ten really well. Uh, David Bell was recruited by Ohio State and basically everybody uh, in a major program. So I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with clarifying a very controversial, provocative statement. Okay, I'll disagree them. I think he read the Twitter heat. The social media mob was after him. And we saw what he did last year when he had that crying episode. I, I, I think they're playing a game. You know, I like announcers who are not afraid to be provocative and bold, but they still have to be responsible in their statements, but will not back down. Look, if Kirk really believes that in general, today's players do not love the game of football the way he did, um, first of all, he's allowed to feel that way. Second of all, if you state it, stand by it. Stop backing away from our comments unless it's factually incorrect. Uh, that's an opinion. He's allowed to have that opinion, uh, but he already backtracked, so what can we do about it? Well, but he's also allowed to clarify his opinion. He's also allowed to say that, get on the phone with coaches who strongly disagree with him get on the phone with maybe an athlete or two who strongly disagree with him and go, you know what, <sighs> maybe I'm a little off here. That's not what I really meant. And, and maybe he's also able to go, if I played in this era, maybe I wouldn't love the game as much as I did in my era. And that's what I, my overall argument is, we've done too many things, the adults, have done too many things to college football for the players to love it the way they once did. This is a completely different game than what it once was. And, yeah. and But Jay, let me just, uh, I'm gonna stick by this. I'm gonna take my own advice. There's a fine line between clarifying and appeasing. This kind of reminds me of Patton Oswalt taking a picture with Dave Chappelle and then preemptively apologizing because he, he knows he's gonna get heat. I, I mean, honestly, totally Kirk, different than Patton Oswalt. <laughs> kind of, sort of. But my, my view is Kirk, you said it. It's okay if people disagree. Honestly, I, when, when yeah. uh, I actually woke up to that statement and I was like, oh, I don't necessarily completely agree with Kirk and Desmond. I think Desmond in today's era, because I remember he, he won the Heisman Trophy in 1991. They had a top 10 team. They played a great Washington team who was fighting for a co-national title. Michigan, though, didn't have that much to play for. They were like the number seven or eight team. They weren't going to win the national title. It never even entered into the discussion that Desmond needed to protect himself. But I'm honest about it. But in today's generation, there would have been a lot of chatter that should Desmond Howard even play in this game. I get that. I don't rip any player for any of their decisions. They are mercenaries. It's their bodies. They are putting on the line. But I'll go back to it. Kirk, if you feel that way, stay that way. What do you think of the hat I got on, uh, Kim? Oh. You can go to Fearless Army hat. You can go to shopblazemedia.com backslash fearless and get you some good Fearless Army merch. We need to send you some Fearless Army merch out to Los Angeles. All right, don't go anywhere. Uh, Tennessee Harmony, Pastor Anthony starts.
All right, welcome back. Time for a little harmony, time for a little Tennessee harmony. Uh, Pastor Anthony Walker flying solo today. Uh, Pastor Bobby out on business, but uh, we will soldier on. Hey, uh, Anthony, I, I want to uh, give you a little fearless swag. Thank uh, <laughs> you. A f a do you wear hats? I do. Yeah, I, I do. I you know, with no hair, you got no <laughs> hair. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, uh, I'm going to ask you to uh, briefly uh, bless our conversation today. All right. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to uh, share your word on today. Thankful for this platform to expand ministry. We ask blessings on those who hear. Uh, and Father, we just ask blessings over this discussion. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. The, you know what? We've fallen into a pretty good rhythm, I think. Uh, on these Tennessee harmonies because I, I love being able to ask you and Bobby about things that are going on in the sports world mm -hmm. and get a biblical take. And I, I think our audience is starting to figure out that like, man, you are a sports fan. And that's <laughs> one of the things, uh, many things that I love about you is that you have a real sincere passion for sports. Mm -hmm. uh, you're foolish enough to think the Tennessee Titans are gonna win the Super Bowl. <laughs> Uh, you send me text on Sundays yes. about the Titans. Yes. And, and, and I don't want to burst your bubble. That's, I just don't respond to that kind of silliness and <laughs> foolishness. But on a more serious note, one of the mm -hmm. big stories of the weekend wasn't that the Tennessee Titans got lucky and won in a blowout. Mm. The actual big story in football on Sunday was Antonio Brown mm -hmm. uh, had another meltdown. Uh, Bruce Arians and he got into a dispute on the sidelines and or he got in a dispute with the coaching staff and he kind of erupted and walked off the field, snatched you know his uniform off, slammed it to the ground, threw his jersey into the crowd and walked off the field. And A.B. is somebody that, as we talked about earlier in the week, uh, has struggled with behavioral issues sure. since childhood. Uh, he, I think he's... He has a relationship with God. He talks about, you know, he used to talk about call God all the time. And, mm -hmm. and you know, I think he's struggling there like many of us are. Right, right. Uh, but I know you had some thoughts about A.B. And, and just what we're seeing from him and what mm -hmm. what might the Bible, what might be a biblical view on how we should look at uh, Antonio Brown. Man, when I first saw the whole incident, I just, I shook my head. And I, and I think I sent you a shaking head emoji, you know, with his song that he put out. It's like, man, you know, what's going on? But as I follow him like a fan, um, there have been issues all along the way. And, and one of the first people that pulled up in my mind uh, about A.B. was Samson in the Bible. Uh, Samson was, you know, tremendously strong. He had a relationship with God. He was tremendously strong, but he also had an interesting weakness. Uh, the book of Judges says it like this in Judges 16 and 17. He said, no razor has ever come up on my head for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And so the thing that made Samson strong and the thing that attracted people to Samson was his strength, but his strength and weakness were tied to the same thing, his hair. 
He lost his hair. Now he's weak and he becomes like everybody else. And so with A.B., I see football. I see his talent. He's a skilled athlete. He's a physical specimen. And that will take an average person out of the hood and put you in a professional light, uh, a professional platform. So that same platform that lifts him up, gives him fame, gives him money, notoriety, et cetera. That's the same thing that can bring him down very quickly. So, you know, I feel bad for him that obviously there's some kind of some kind of pain going on. One of the things I always say about uh, people who self-destruct, um, it, you really have to be hurting for the only thing that brings comfort to you is to hurt yourself. Like this is the one thing when people constantly self-destruct. This same thing kind of goes with those who, you know, may be dealing with, you know, substance abuse. Like this is the only thing that brings me comfort. But that comfort is causing me to self-destruct. So what we saw on TV is an expanded version of what happens to you and I. I mean, I have failed tremendously in life and, and my failures have not been you know, nationally publicized, but I failed, you know, very big. His, for some reason, because of his elevation, et cetera, has put him on the spotlight. But again, as with Samson, the same weakness that he has in terms of failure, falling, unresolved issues in his past, et cetera, we deal with him too. And like it did with Samson, it made him like every other man. I hear that and think that uh, he has a fear, particularly now that he's in his 30s, particularly now that he's ruined situations with the Raiders, uh, uh, New England, mm -hmm. Pittsburgh, and now here he is in Tampa and gets in a dispute with Bruce Arians. And Tom Brady. Yeah, and Tom. Yeah. And, and so, and when Bruce Arians is like, get out of here, I think fear Mm -hmm. of blue like football is the only thing holding him together mm -hmm. and here's another organization perhaps rejecting him and he's afraid of that because I don't know if he uh, has an identity that he trusts mm -hmm. beyond his identity as a football player and that may be the case um, there was another guy that we know of in scripture uh, that struggled with identity, struggled with some issues that that lingered with him as a, a man by the name of Moses. Moses struggled with his own identity. He's a Hebrew. His mother, in an effort to save his life, uh, sends him down the river. He ends up uh, in the palace uh, uh, in Egypt and he grows up as an Egyptian. But that's not who he is. And he's abandoned as a child. And the reason why I say this kind of thing lingered with Moses throughout his life, there's a point in his ministry where God is kind of frustrated with Israel. Moses is kind of frustrated with Israel. And God says, I'm going to send you forth. And Moses says, I'm not going another step without you. In other words, I don't want to be abandoned again. I don't want to struggle with this again. I need you with me. So you're right. It's possible that A.B. is struggling with his identity as who he is. One of the things that happens with men is whether we're ready or not, whether we had proper training or not, whether we have proper discipleship or not. At some point, you got to be a man. 
And so with A.B., yes, football can bring you fame, notoriety, et cetera. But there's a short window. You know, there's you know this, you know, average NFL career, four to seven years if you're lucky. And then you've got a few others that last longer than that. So he has a small window to make as much money, to change his future, to do whatever, to build his own brand, his own platform. But if you still are carrying these unresolved issues and you talked about it uh, a couple of shows ago, issues in his childhood, like why did you why were you kicked out at such a young age? Why did you with all of this talent? Why weren't you a D1 athlete like you clearly in the NFL? You could really be, but you kind of get hopped around here. So. There's something going on and all that happens, and you know this uh, as an athlete, if you're good, they'll tolerate some stuff. So he gets in this class, ah, they'll go ahead and pass him on. He gets with this team, yeah, if you overlook this, but man, that kid can run, he can catch, he can run a route like nobody's business. But we still haven't dealt with who is AB as a man. And so when you talk about that fear, Here's what happens when you no longer have the fame, you no longer have the money, you no longer have the fans clamoring for you. You got to sit down with you and be okay. And if you're not okay, that's when you begin to self-destruct and fold in on yourself. There's, There's something going on. You know, Tom Brady, for however people feel about him, Tom Brady said, I want that guy on my team. Could be selfish reasons for his own personal legacy. Uh, But we've seen great athletes play with some of those off the hinge guys. You know, I'm a Jordan fan. He's able to function with Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman was a wild card for that team. He did his job, but he was a wild card. Jordan could function with that. But even Dennis struggled with some of that identity. Who do I really want to be in this world? And when that window's over, you got to deal with it. There was another scripture. Oh, for oh, one go ahead. Go ahead. I, 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 and I didn't intend to linger this long, but you said some things that are interesting that I want to follow up on. Uh, and it's really a follow up from our conversation on Monday. One of the things that's frustrating me, Anthony, as we as the public has a conversation about Antonio Brown and people in the media, people immediately started going to, well, is it CTE? Mm-hmm. And is it, did Mike Tomlin and them, did they coddle him in Pittsburgh and blah, 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 blah. And, and what was frustrating me and what I started arguing on Monday is like, why do we gotta talk about CTE? Why can't we just go back to family structure? Mm-hmm. And because he had behavioral issues as a kid, there's all these studies, that's all this proof that if young people aren't developed, in a proper supportive household, they're going to struggle. There's gonna be issues you have to deal with. And so I hear it all as like an excuse to avoid the cure that God prescribes. Yes. The importance of family. Certainly. And mom and dad and a nuclear family and all of that. That, and so that's the solution for A.B. in childhood, mm-hmm. but it's also the solution for him in adulthood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He hasn't been able to create his own family. He's been able to father kids, mm-hmm. but he hasn't created a family structure for him to properly develop as a man. I think about myself, and ter- I haven't been able to do it, and maybe that's where some of my struggles come from, but, but I just see we've 
rigged society in a way now that no one ever goes back to the simple biblical truths sure. and prescriptions that have stood the test of time. Yeah. And we always look, well, maybe we just don't have him on the right medicine. Mm -hmm. Maybe he took a hit from perfect and that. <laughs> I saw it. that, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And I'm just like, no, maybe he didn't grow up in the right household and maybe he hasn't created a family structure to help him develop. You know, I, I think about it, you know, you're right in terms of when we, you know, go to all these other reasons why it could be with skipping over the fact that, wait a minute, what about here? And one of the things that that family structure provides is a safe haven of love, of acceptance, uh, of, of teaching, discipleship, all of that at home you get. So that when you go to school and you're not in the in crowd, you're not popular. Man, I'm, I got a family that's nobody's business. I'm I'm good at home. When you go to try out for this and you get cut, man, I'm going to go back home to my dad. We're going to work through this. We're going to function through this. But if that's broken down, we are so designed to need love that when we don't get it, we'll accept substitutes. So we'll accept Fame, you know, fame looks like it's loving. I go out, everybody's calling my name. Everybody seems to love me. They want pieces of me. They don't know you. They don't know your inner being. and You don't know them. This isn't love. It's a whole bunch of admiration, but that's not love. You really want. And when that that's what I'm saying, when he has to sit. Another one we absolutely. It, it seems like love. That's not love. Just pure sex. That's not love. But if I can get the fans, if I can get the women, if I can get the money, hey, they love me. They love me. Look at how many people follow me. If I just get on social media, if I go live in the locker room, look at how many people. Do they love you, A.B.? And so now he's having to, the further and further he gets down the line, the more and more excuses that are pushed away to where now he's getting closer to sitting with A.B., um, that scripture uh, in Mark chapter five. Here's another guy that came to mind. Jesus gets out of the boat in, in Mark chapter five and immediately a man met him out of the tombs. He, he had an unclean spirit. He had been dwelling among the tombs. No one could bind him even with chains because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. Listen, and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken into pieces, neither could anyone tame him. Always day and night, he was in the mountains, in the tombs, crying out, cutting himself with stones. Here's a man that has an unclean spirit with him. And I, and I really want, if there's any way to get this to A.B., I really want this to get out to him and anybody that's struggling with, with something that seems to be ongoing. Our issues in life are from a spiritual nature, not a physical nature. What happens to us spiritually plays out in the physical realm. So if A.B. is dealing with, like I said, unresolved issues, uh, love issues, family issues, God relationship issues. If he's dealing with that, he's feeding on what his temptations are affording him, the excess that he has, the all of that. He's feeding on that. 
The only way to combat that is through God, through a right spiritual connection. Paul says uh, in another passage, because when we listen to this guy, before I go to my other scripture, when we listen to what happened to this guy, he's living among the tombs. We're a people that need interpersonal relationships. We need people. But for a person to go and live amongst the tombs, that's not normal. For a person, A.B., you've got all of these things afforded to you, but you're pushing away the very guy that's throwing you the ball. That's not normal. Something's up. Something's there. Some kind of conflict. They said that nobody could tame him. He couldn't be chained up. And whatever you bound him with, he broke it loose. So, so whatever A.B. may have or anybody that may be struggling, these spirits, the spiritual warfare that we're in, Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter six. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So Paul asserts here, our fight is not physical. It looks physical. And when we really look at that, if we try to go through life in just the physical realm, the devil, he has that battle already won. He's stronger than us physically. If, if physical strength was all that we needed to make it through your bodybuilders, your athletes, I mean, they'd be on top of the world. But it's not because they even struggle with what the real problem is. We're in a spiritual war. Paul says in Second Corinthians, for we do not for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So again, Paul is letting us know we're in the flesh realm, but our war, our fight is in the spiritual realm. So if we're going to overcome we got to overcome it spiritually. Those that love Antonio Brown, those that are really trying to help him, you got to get him to pull out of this fantasy world of fame and social media and get him plugged in spiritually. Discipleship. You're Bobby and I talking about it a lot. That's someone who's following Christ, walking on the same journey with you following Christ. We're in this thing together. We're encouraging one another. I'm showing you this is what life is really about, because after the league is over, you got to live the rest of your life. You got to live every single day. You got to be able to face your demons, your challenges, your obstacles every single day. And the only way we can do that successfully is through the word of God. Mm. Uh, we'll definitely splice this up and try to get it in front of AB's eyes and see here if to help, man. Something, hit, something hits with him. Uh, yesterday, I believe it was, we had a conversation about an ESPN employee that was kind of inconsequential to this conversation, but TJ Moe, who comes on this show, said some really interesting and powerful things that I wanted to see 
are they, are they biblically sound? And, and he, one of the things he said was just that, that men are wired to be providers, protectors, and procreators. Let's play the clip, and then I want you to give me a biblical take. I think what she's doing here is evil, it's stupid, and it's counterproductive. And so I'll try to be brief here. Here's where it's evil. No, 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 no. Hold, hold for one second. You just said a mouthful. Take your time. Evil, stupid, and counterproductive. Go ahead. There we go. I think men are wired to do three things in particular amongst many other things. Protect, provide, and procreate. Those are the three Ps of being a man. This is, I mean, historically, this is what we are wired to do. They are protecting, number one. Uh, excuse me, they are, they, are, they are attacking, number one, our male instinct to protect, okay? This is absolute manipulation. Something terrible gets said to Mina Kimes, and here comes Jeff Saturday and Dan Orlovsky to the rescue, along with all the executives and the rest of society, because we are wired to protect women. This is what we do, right? And, and there's, there's actually some history to this. You go read, why is it that men always have gone to battle while the women stay home? Well, because a womb is substantially more valuable than sperm, right? One guy left from battle can go knock up 20 women and you can then pro procreate and your tribe is saved. Whereas if you send all the women to battle and you've got a bunch of men back home and the woman comes back, you've only got one baby at a time. Good luck procreating, right? There's actually some history to this. The male instinct, we are wired this way and they are directly attacking this. I, 54 years old, had never heard anyone make that womb and the value of a woman protecting her womb. I'd never heard that. And, and I, I was like, wow, that makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. And then also how men, we're wired to be protectors, to be providers, and to procreate. Just your reaction, not the Mina King stuff, just your reaction to, can you further elaborate <laughs> on anything he said there? I mean, it goes back to the beginning. You know, I often go back to the beginning to help get us back aligned with God's design for us. When he made man, when he made woman, when he made man, he gave man a complete responsibility over this world. He said, tend to this garden, protect it, make it fruitful, provide. And when she comes along, I want you to be fruitful and multiply in the earth. It's exactly uh, as T.J. Moe lays it out. That's a biblical understanding of what we're supposed to be as men and protecting that. But it goes even beyond just this, you know, psychological or just this. No, we've got to protect the world because if there's anybody that needs to stand up for it, it's men. It's godly men standing up for it. And when we don't, when we don't assume that position. Now, this is where I think it's interesting. When we don't do what we're supposed to do, women will naturally gravitate to that position. When God gave the command to Adam and Eve to not eat from that forbidden tree. Now, Eve, yes, she was first deceived and Adam was with her. So he's there. We don't read anywhere in the Bible where Adam said, oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. God said we're not supposed to. No, Eve, put that down. Who are you talking to? Get that you know, serpent out of here. You, we got to go back. He didn't do any of that. That's what he was supposed to do. She's in the garden. 
He's responsible, but he did not assume that responsibility. And what does she do? She takes the lead. When we don't stand up and be what God has called us to be as men, women will naturally gravitate to that perspective. And then when they get there, now we got to fight to get it back. And it seems like, oh, we're turning the world upside down when actually we're doing what God has called us to do. His point about the value of the womb made me think immediately of like our abortion craze. Mm. Mm. And, and it's just like, it, it just struck me so powerfully because the womb is arguably the most sacred place yeah. on, the, on the planet. Yeah. And we are really willy nilly about it mm-hmm. and, and don't seem to understand its value. That's another spot where we are not taking responsibility for the protection of the family. Obviously, the implication is the womb being the seat of the family, but but we're we are abdicating that responsibility. Think about how men sometimes they'll see somebody. Oh, we're going to sleep with a blah, blah, blah. She says, I'm pregnant. He's out as if that's oh, that's that's your problem. Pregnancy is on you. That's I don't know how that happened, you know, and, and even sometimes how men even talk about. It. Yeah, she got pregnant. Really? <laughs> By osmosis? Like, how did that take place? So when he leaves, she has to make a decision. Well, I'm not ready. And well, he's not ready. And abortion looks, you know, like an option. And, you know, maybe sometimes adoption seems like an option. But abortion, ah, they, everybody's kind of pushing that. And that seems like, OK, this is something that I could But as we look at what the research shows, as we look at how it plays out, it damages her many times physically, but so many times emotionally, psychologically. It damages him in ways that he won't understand until he takes a hard look at what God purposed him to do. And you're like, man, that was mine. You know, when men walk in their calling of being men of God and and standing up for God, Um, In God's world, rather, you get such a sense of like, wow, you know, God has given me this dominion, which goes back to the garden. When my son uh, was born, on one hand, I'm I'm thrilled. I'm excited. On the other hand, I'm kind of overwhelmed because, you know, my father passed when I was two years old. So some of that life, you know, I didn't get. Uh, So it's like, man, I I, want to give him all that I didn't have, but I don't even know if I have it all yet. But then as I look at him develop, it's like, wow, God, you've given me an opportunity to through my discipling, through my living as a man to be an example to him, which would go on beyond me after I'm dead and gone. The legacy of what God put in me will go through him. That's a huge responsibility, but I'm grateful that out of all the people in the world, God says, I want this son to be under your responsibility. And then later on, my daughter, I want this daughter to be in your responsibility in this world. That's an amazing, humbling responsibility that we have. Last thing TJ said, he referenced his grandfather and and he made a point that I completely agree with uh, I, I it's obvious to me because but we're in this era where everybody seems determined 
to improve all the people around them. And we've lost sight of the fact, according to TJ and his grandfather, that the best way we can improve the world is by improving ourselves. Play the clip. People have this idea that they all need to change the world. You should change yourself to properly handle the world. You should not change the world to properly handle you. That's insane. There are 7.9 billion people on this earth. Everybody should not cater to you. My grandfather, one of the greatest people that I've ever known, he told me he grew up on a farm in the old days when you actually you went, you woke up at 4 a.m., you worked in the farm, you went to school, you came home and worked until dark, and then you did your homework and did it again. That was every day of his life growing up. One of the things that they were able to do, they didn't have much free time, as I just said, on the furnace, the old wood-burning furnaces they had, there was a poem. He read it, never forgot it, and he shared it with me as a kid before he passed. He said, your task is to build a better world. This is a poem. Your task is to build a better world, said God. I answered, how? The world is such a large, vast place, so complicated now, and I so small and helpless, there's nothing I can do. And God, in his great wisdom, said, just build a better you. This is the stupidity of going out and trying to change, better, uh, change the world. It turns out the only way to build a better world is actually to succeed in changing yourself, and thereby the world becomes a better place. Because if everyone's doing that, we don't have to go change everyone. Worry about yourself, right? love that i think it plays into the discipleship that you and bobby talk about all the time mm -hmm. because and again it all of this flows together when you start talking about your sons mm -hmm. your daughters your response they are really just an extension of you yes and so as you disciple them you're actually improving yourself. Absolutely. And that's how you improve the world. Uh, someone, I think it was a guy, Larry Taunton, who's been on this show, talked about the kids that he had, and maybe it was Dave Shannon, and, and he, he basically said his kids are arrows that he's shooting into the world. Mm -hmm. And he goes, that's why God tells Christian men, be fruitful. Mm -hmm. Shoot those arrows disciple, raise your kids, shoot those arrows into the world and watch them, if you develop them properly, watch the impact they have on the world. The Bible describes uh, children as arrows. Keep your quiver full. Another uh, example or analogy that he describes children as olive branches around your table. Um, going to Israel a couple of years ago, olive trees, after you take care of them to a certain point, they will live forever. They'll always have the rain will sustain them. You don't have to do it. They will live and they will produce forever and ever. And so, yes, I agree with him, even from a biblical perspective. What Christ is doing for us is, is we've got to follow him. Now, as I'm following Christ, the uh, extension of my ministry is, yeah, I need to disciple someone else. But I don't first approach the world with, hey, I'm going to change the world without myself first becoming a disciple. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So this is after Paul has become himself disciple. This is after Paul is now focused on living out the call that Christ has for him. And even as we look at what Jesus did in this world, the Bible says he turned the entire world upside down with 12 men. So could you imagine if fathers out there. I am going to be a better man from this point forth. Can't change my past. I can always change my future. Well, what if they do this to you? What if this happens to you? I can't control anybody else's uh, 
actions, but I can always control my response. So that brings it back to if I am living it out, if I'm doing what I can in Christ, ultimately that will change the world. I agree. Mm. Uh, Very good, Tennessee Harmony. Uh, Bobby, you can take off next week as well. (laughs) All right, uh, that's tomorrow I hear in my ear. That means we'll see you tomorrow. Striking like a ladder, making all this moves for freedom. I want freedom. No negotiation, my system, no relation. We all just want to have freedom. Sitting on a corner, never been alone. I'm breaking my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back. We are receiving all the seed when we all want to be free. We want freedom. I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be, I just